Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Well, let's consider this story together, Luke 7. This is a Renaissance picture that I got somewhere off the internet. I, I don't know who the, the, uh, the artist is, but uh, we're just going to think about this picture for a moment as we go through. This is an incredibly rich story and a very powerful story. And, a, a, and again, when I was, it's another story on the theme of love, but it's quite a different angle on love. We've been thinking about the Shema, God's, res- uh, God's people's response to God, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, mind. We've been thinking about Matthew and the, the command and the challenge of love and obedience to Jesus. Um, and we've been thinking around then the community of love, the people of God, and Corinthians 13 last night. This one's a bit of a different angle in that it is one person's response to Jesus. And again, but it is still on our theme, really. It's human response to God's love. Uh, And this gives us a different angle and a beautiful picture of the transforming power of love. So a little bit of background. This story uh, appears in, in, uh, well, varieties of this story appear in the Gospels. Uh, You might be familiar with that. It appears in Matthew and Mark. Um, And in Matthew and Mark, uh, there's an unnamed woman anoints Jesus' head with oil. In John's gospel, um, Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus's feet. Um, and so there's there's quite a lot of debate about, is that, are they all recounting the same story or what's happening? In Luke, uh, just a little, I think it's helpful to say, my sense is, and I'm not the expert, but looking at the experts, in that this story is probably a unique story. The others are recounting um, women who are anointing Jesus shortly before the crucifixion, uh, and it's almost like preparing him for burial. This one is different. It's much earlier. This is the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and this is an unnamed woman. Where the women in the other stories are um, of high standing, if you like, reputable character. Mary of Bethany was a great friend of Jesus. Here it's a woman who is named as a sinner, um, and the part of the story is her, her dubious background. So it's very probably that this is a unique story of, 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 of anointing by this unnamed woman in, in Luke 7. So it begins with a dinner invitation. Jesus in his Galilean ministry is engaging with the Pharisees. And contrary to um, caricatures, Jesus didn't you know, always have a head-to-head butting of Pharisees calling them whitewashed tombs. There was actually quite a bit of dialogue. In John's Gospel, he's debating with Nicodemus. Here, he's invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. And Simon, I think, is, is, is intrigued by Jesus. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader. He's an expert in the law. This rabbi is teaching and preaching and doing remarkable things and healing and and there's, is this the Messiah come? What's happening? And he invites Jesus to his house for a dinner. Um, and that dinner is a very different to our sort of dinner. It's very much a public event. This is, uh, he's going to debate a th- theology. He's going to debate Jesus' ministry and teaching. He wants, to, he wants to hear more about Jesus. And other people apparently, I don't know if you do this at home, but other people would have been invited to witness the dinner and would have been standing around the outside of the dinner table. And um, they would have been reclining at the table with their feet away from the table. 
and there would have been discussion and maybe other guests would have come and listened to the conversation. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Have your dinner table conversation listening by, by others around it. And maybe they'd have then enjoyed a bit of the, the food and the stuff left over, I'm not sure. But it seems to be quite a public event. And, and Simon calls Jesus uh, didaskale, which is like rabbi. It's a polite form of address. He's, he's intrigued and he wants to know more about Jesus. And uh, this is what's happening. And then the story takes this twist because of who appears at the dinner. This woman slips in at the back and she stands there. So what we're going to do in this, and, and this is a short story, so I won't be too long this morning. I just simply, I want to do something quite simple. I just want to look at the three people that are at the heart of this story. There's the woman, there's Simon, mm -hmm. and there's Jesus. So we're, what we're going to do is look at each one in turn and reflect on what is happening here. So let's look at the woman first. She's described as a sinner. Now, in the, in the text that Maffey had, I think it was probably the NIV, it says uh, she had lived a sinful life. Now, that's not a great translation. It just simply is she's a sinner. That's what's described. And Simon then later calls her uh, a sinner. Now, there's a whole pack of stuff in church history here about this woman, which I think is a lot of it's undeserved because she's described as a sinner but I don't know what comes into your minds when that word is used. And this picture behind us, I think, uh, gives a good illustration. You see this woman, she's sort of, she's sort of somewhat uh, undressed. Um, and the, and the, the implication of the assumptions in church history is she's been a prostitute. Uh, she's sexually immoral in some way. And what she does at this dinner when she uh, comes to Jesus and she cries and she dries his feet with her hair a lot of people assume well all that's very sort of loose behavior that's sort of somehow sexually shameless um and there's all and then there's stuff happens where um she's equated with mary magdalene in church history which the tradition said somewhere that mary magdalene was a prostitute and this woman gets conflated with mary magdalene and she's a prostitute and a sinner who come i think we have to be a bit, step back a bit from the text. Luke doesn't say any of that. He doesn't. So he, all he simply says is, she's a sinner. He doesn't talk about her sin. He doesn't say what she did. In some way, she's socially excluded. There's shame. She's been ostracized in some way from her community. But actually, we're not told her sin. It might have been sexual. It might have been... Um, it might have been something like infidelity. It might even have been her husband who might have had a very disreputable uh, job in the sense of, you know, they, like Matthew was a tax collector and he had to deal with the Romans and all the... If you're dealing with the Gentiles and doing all the stuff as uh, sort of with the Roman Empire and with the Gentiles, that was... You were, you were excluded. You were breaking the law. You were seen as a sinner. So we have to be a bit careful as to reading into the text what this woman has done. Now you might think, why am I going on about that? But I think it's important, and we'll, we'll come back to this in a moment. Luke is actually very restrained. He just simply says she was considered a sinner. He is not interested in her sin and what she did. That's not the point of the story. So I'll, I'll stop my rant in a minute. But, but in the NIV... And many Bibles, it has a heading. I don't know what it has in your Bible, but it's often Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman is often the heading of this story. I don't think that's a great title for what happens in this story. I don't think that's the focus 
of the story. So have a think about what title you might like to give this story if after, after we've looked at it. Well, let's look at what she does after, after talking about that. Um, she, she does something quite remarkable. She, if you notice, she comes prepared to this banquet. She comes with a jar of alabaster, uh, an alabaster jar of perfume, not alabaster perfume. She comes with a jar of, of perfume with her. So she's prepared. She's thought beforehand what she wants to do. She wants, she wants to anoint Jesus in some way. Now you might ask, oh, what's happened there? And again, we're not told, but it might have been that she's already met Jesus. She's already had some engagement with him, possibly. And maybe Jesus has already shown her grace and forgiveness and hope, and she wants to come and anoint him out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, maybe. Or maybe um, she's just heard him teach, and she knows about him, and she's coming hopeful that he can do something for her, that he in some way uh, can bless her, and she's hoping that in some way he will treat her in a way that he's had a reputation for treating those who are excluded, those on the margins. And Jesus has this reputation for welcoming the sinners in. And she knows that's how she's uh, perceived. And maybe she's coming to him in hope. We don't exactly know. I suspect she's had some engagement with Jesus already. But she's decided to anoint Jesus with this expensive perfume, not just olive oil. She's coming. This is a costly thing. She wants to honor him. She wants to pour out this oil, which is expensive. It's not only sacrificial. And I want to try, try and put yourself in her shoes here. She's socially excluded. She's looked down upon. She's shamed. And yet here she is coming to a public event with other people, with leaders of the Pharisees who judge her as a sinner, and she's putting herself in harm's way, isn't she? She's putting herself right in the firing line here of coming into a public arena to publicly anoint this figure, this rabbi, this teacher. She's taking a tremendous risk as she enters this dinner table, this dinner meal. And Luke takes great care to describe her every step in detail. Um, Luke is one of the gospels, uh, the gospel writers who has a tremendous, uh, there, Luke has more about women in his gospel than the other writers. He is, he is, he really looks at Jesus' ministry with women, and he says there's a lot of interesting uh, focus. And Luke is very careful to highlight Jesus' attitude and engagement with women. And this is a very powerful, important story. So Jesus stands behind, uh, sorry, the woman stands behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Luke simply describes what's going on here. She's, she's crying. She's weeping. We again can only guess why is she crying. Why is she weeping? And she moves forward and she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, kissing them and pouring perfume on his feet. Because his feet, remember, are probably pointing away from the table. She's approached them. And it seems like, I suspect here, she's not planning this. She's come plan, planning with, with perfume to anoint him. I suspect she's overcome with emotion as she approaches him. She hasn't planned this. She breaks into tears. The Greek is really strong here. It's like rain showers. It's like it's the same language used for rain falling. She's absolutely crying uncontrollably as she approaches Jesus. And her tears fall on his feet. Maybe it's 
I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's joy at approaching this Messiah who's shown her love and forgiveness already. Maybe it's just that there's so much at stake. She's approaching him in hope of restoration, hope that he will do something and show her love and grace. Maybe it's years of social exclusion and being marginalized and ignored. And there's so much at stake for her in this encounter. I suspect it's an unplanned soaking of his feet. I don't think she planned this. She just breaks into tears. And I suspect what happens here is she wets his feet and she doesn't maybe know what to do. And she wipes his feet with her hair. So I don't think, and, and the Greek here is very strong. It's like there's a reverence. She kisses his feet reverently. It is not like the picture in tradition that says, oh, this is a sexual act of a woman with unbound hair doing something to Jesus' feet, which was sexually immoral. I don't think there's any sense of that in, in the actual story. And it wouldn't have felt, it wouldn't have been appropriate within this public setting anyway. It would have been very strange. So I suspect there's, that we read too much into this text. There's deep reverence as she anoints his feet with oil she, while well, she dries her, his feet first with her hair. That's the woman. So we're going to leave her for a moment. Let's turn to Simon. The first, that's the, the woman and what she does. Let's look at how Luke describes what happens to, to, with Simon as he watches this scene unfold in his dinner table. And I think it's fascinating. There's not a word spoken here so far. The woman has been described. She hasn't spoken. She's come and done this to Jesus. Simon also doesn't speak. Um, but we're told what Simon thinks. Simon, who had invited uh, him, saw this and said to himself, so this is Simon internally thinking, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Simon has already summed up the situation. And he's shocked that an impure woman should be touching a rabbi, a teacher of, of the law, a man, publicly. Um, and within that culture, there was strict rules between engagement between men and women. Um, and certainly a woman like this would not touch a man. And a man wouldn't let himself be touched in this way by a woman. And so Simon sort of works it all out theologically then. Well, if, if this woman's impure and a sinner, and if this man's supposed to be from God, and he's allowing her to touch him, he's not from God at all. He's, he would know this, and he wouldn't allow this to happen. And Simon has, has wiped Jesus off the agenda here, and Jesus, he's confirmed all his questions about the identity of this teacher and this rabbi. Well, he's obviously not from God, and it's, that's the end of the conversation here, and it's all over. And you can imagine Simon getting very indignant and upset watching this scene unfold. And you can imagine Jesus sitting here letting this all happen, just letting this woman do this to him without showing any shock or wanting to withdraw or telling her to go away. He allows her to do this to him. And Simon is outraged and upset and has made up his own mind. No words at all have been exchanged <laughs> so far. But you see what Simon doesn't do? He doesn't think and doesn't ask himself anything about the woman. Apart from she's a sinner, he doesn't ask, well, why is she crying? Uh, who is she? Why is she upset? Why has she come to the house? Why is she anointing Jesus' feet? 
he's just knows she's a sinner and that's enough and she's dismissed from his mind so let's turn now to the third person in the story who is jesus and see how he interprets these events radically differently to simon and the really that the heart of this story is the contrast of interpretation between what we've just looked at simon is thinking and what jesus does this is the contrast a bigger gulf is hard to imagine between the two of them and let me say this is fantastic good news because you see the heart of god here and you see the heart of jesus how he deals with sinners and people who are in need of grace and he tells simon a parable we were just um I was just talking earlier about what do you do when you have a difficult relationship with somebody and need to say stuff. Sometimes a direct approach isn't the best. And so Jesus doesn't say to Simon, you stupid man, you know, you're all wrong. He tells him a story. And he tells him a very simple story. And he said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500, the other 50. Neither could pay him back. But unlike any money, money lender you ever know or I've ever known, the money lender says, it's all right, grand. Um, I'm not going to look for your money back. Um, and which money, which person, the debtor, which debt um, debtor will um, love more in response? And I love this, the I suppose in Simon's response. I suppose the one who has been forgiven much. He's sort of forced into this response to, to acknowledge Jesus' point to say, well, the one who's forgiven most will, will love most. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here with the Pharisee? He's saying, your theological assumptions about this woman as a sinner have blinded you to what has actually been unfolding right before your eyes. I think the most powerful phrase in this whole story is Jesus' next question to Simon when he says, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman, Simon? And of course, the reality is Simon hasn't seen her at all. She's been completely invisible to him. He has been utterly blind to her crying to her emotion to why is she doing what she's doing and he's just dismissed her she's just a sinner and she's not to be considered anymore but here's the good news she is not invisible to jesus and this is a very moving story what is your picture of god when he's confronted with our failure and our sin is he a God who will just dismiss us as failures? Or is he a God who sees us and wants to restore and heal us? What is your picture of God? Simon's picture of God was of one where the law was like a boundary which circumscribed the, whole, the pure and the impure. And if you were outside that boundary, you, there was no gospel of good news. You were outside the boundary. You were gone. But here is Jesus showing us the heart of God who generously forgives sinners, who restores, who sees her heart and sees what truly is going on. Simon sees a disgraced sinner. Jesus looked upon the woman and saw someone who he could set free from her past, from her shame, from her social exclusion and see her transformed from somebody who was lost into somebody who would be 
a joyful worshiper. And really one of the things I take from this story is God is in the business of transforming sinners into lovers because that's what happens in this story. She is transformed from this excluded sinner into a lover and a worshiper of Jesus who is God's Messiah. So let's, let's follow on the story. Verse 44 to 47, the woman's great love is commended. He, now Jesus turns. Do you see how Simon has completely ignored the woman? Hasn't addressed her, hasn't thought about her, hasn't talked to her. And now Jesus turns towards the woman and includes her in the conversation and asks Simon a question. Do you see this woman? And we've said he hasn't. Um, and Jesus compares, and this is, imagine putting yourself in Simon's shoes here. Now he's been compared to the woman, this sinner, and she's been upheld as someone who has acted more honorably than he has. This is really shocking. There's a parable, turn, this parable's like a story with a sting in the tail here, and Jesus is challenged. Imagine, the woman actually has been held up as a more virtuous character who acts more honorably than Simon does. I came into your house, you didn't give me any water. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She showed more love and compassion and, and hospitality to me than you did. You didn't give me a kiss. She, from the time I've entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. I don't know about you, I don't really fancy kissing somebody's stranger's feet. Um, feet are not very uh, great. I don't know, feet are funny parts of the body here, but here, here there's... You know, your feet are going to be dusty and dirty and she has washed them and she's kissed them. She's honored him. It's a very humble thing to wash somebody else's feet. This is why in John 13, Jesus says, and he does, he washes the disciples' feet. It's a humbling thing to do. And here she's been kissing his feet. You did not put oil in my head, which would have been an, a sign of honoring the, the guest. She has poured perfume, which is better than oil, on my feet. At every point, she's outdone Simon in her attitude to Jesus. He hasn't been disrespectful, but he hasn't gone out of his way. He's sort of been judging Jesus. He's said, oh, well, I've come here and I'll see what I think of you. She has come and worshipped and honoured him. And then he says something. If you imagine Simon's getting pretty upset at this point, the woman has been honoured three times better than he has. Then he says even something worse your sins have been forgiven as her great love. Her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Now that phrase, great love, and we're thinking about love, that is unique in the entire, entirety of the New Testament, that a disciple is talked of as someone who has great love. The only other time that phrase, I think, appears is in Ephesians, and it talks about God's great love for us poured out in the cross and sending his son to die for us. Here, this woman, this disciple, this sinner excluded, is said she has a great love for Jesus as her great love has shown. She has shown me more love than anyone else in the whole, in the whole of the New Testament. This is some of the highest praise of any disciple given by Jesus in, in the New Testament to this woman. And we don't know her name. Still don't know her name. She's unnamed. And she doesn't say a word in the whole story. It's very powerful. Imagine yourself as this woman. Um, I, I come from a very privileged background. Um, I'm educated, I'm white, I'm 
relatively well off in the West and I have never known what it is to be socially excluded. Maybe some of you have. I don't know what it is to be invisible or not listened to or dismissed or seen as having no value or worth. Maybe some of you, particularly in these days of, um, of boundaries and immigration and all sorts of stuff about borders and who can come into the country and we're judged by what passport we have. To be socially excluded is something I cannot really relate to. But this woman knew what it was to be socially excluded, to be ignored, to be silenced, to be not spoken to, not have any worth and value. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And I can only imagine, we were just looking at Psalm, what was the Psalm? 73 this morning, that or 72, that image of, uh, there was an image in the Psalm of rain hitting the ground and just the in a very imagine yourself not in Ireland <laughs> in the Middle East rain is really valuable and beautiful and it hits the ground and it restores the ground and it gives refreshment I can only imagine that this word given to this woman your sins are forgiven must have been like rain hitting parched ground and giving life but he also says this to her publicly this is not a private conversation. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven and everybody else is watching. Simon is watching. The Pharisees are watching. The community is watching. And so he's publicly restoring this woman to a place of honor and your sins are forgiven. Your past is no longer going to shape you. It doesn't have to control you. Your sins are forgiven. So this woman has no name, doesn't speak a word, and yet she's described as having the greatest love for Jesus than anyone in the New Testament. And I think she presents to us a model of discipleship, a model of what it is to respond to Jesus. Because her faith, let me put it this way, and just in terms of the, I just want to make two or three points before I close. One is that faith and love are combined here in this woman. She has faith in Jesus and she loves him. That's why he's, he sees in her such a model. The depth of her great love in her powerlessness, her self-giving, her humility. She comes to Jesus knowing she needs forgiveness. She shows us what discipleship looks like, where in the kingdom of God, the, first, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Here is the last coming and being raised up and honored by Jesus. She's showing us the real evidence of faith and love is, as we come to Jesus is to give our lives in love and response to him. He's the, the, he's the Messiah and the Lord who commands our response, but it isn't just command. She comes to him in joy and in worship and thanksgiving. And I think she's a model for us to come humbly before the Lord and confess our sins, not in fear, but to know that God is a God who graciously and generously forgives our sins. And what is our response? Well, it's worship and praise. She's a thankful worshiper who loves Jesus wholeheartedly. And she pours out her heart to him. So faith and love are combined. But there's a negative side of this story. There's also a warning. And that's Simon, where faith 
and love are detached, are separated. He claims to faith in God, but there's no love in how he treats this woman. He fails where she succeeds in his lack of love. You know, we can have all the right doctrines and believe all the right stuff, um, but sometimes if we don't have love, and this is a theme of the weekend and from Corinthians yesterday, Paul says the greatest of these is love. Love is the core, the whole point of being a Christian. If I don't have love, I'm a resounding clang, clanging symbol and all of those things. And the same is here. Here's Simon who claims to have faith in God, but he has no love for those who are lost. No love for those in need of compassion. And so I think the challenge here is if, if we think if Christian life and ministry is about status or power or efficiency or, or just get it and we just leave people behind, then we're missing the point. Again, I've said earlier, like a bright student can ace every exam and know all the right doctrines or we can have all our theology correct, but if we don't have love, we've missed the point. And deep in our culture is the idea that, that, that knowledge counts, faith counts, that knowing the right stuff counts. But really, the woman shows us that the real heart of discipleship is to be transformed from a sinner into a lover. That's what God wants for us, to be transformed into sinners, to lovers of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, Simon also shows us, I think, how not to do mission. <laughs> okay, You're not going to be very effective in mission if you're going out to people and, and just saying, well, you're doing this wrong, that wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. And, you know, unless you raise up your standards and get your act together, you're not going to be acceptable. That's really Simon's approach to mission. It's not going to be very effective. And let, let me just make my last point. I think, and that's around discipleship, love, and gender. We shouldn't miss the male-female thing going on here because it's really strong. This was a patriarchal culture where the Jewish man and Simon the Pharisee was in powerful position. The woman, as a woman, was in a less powerful position, but also as a sinner, she was in an even less powerful. She was the bottom of the bottom here. And Jesus and Luke deliberately reverses the expectations of that culture when it comes to the woman. Jesus deliberately confronts that male-dominated culture and he holds this woman up as one of the greatest models of Christian discipleship in the New Testament. So what matters to Jesus is not the gender. Simon was dismissing her really partly because of her gender. She's a woman and she's a sinner. I mean, you, you know, you're, it's a major, major problem. I think a Jewish man of those days would have said, thank God I'm not a Gentile. Thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a sinner. So this woman was meeting two out of the three here. What counts to Jesus is not whether she's male or female. It's really what he is restoring her and showing Simon the real heart of Christian discipleship is love for me. The real heart of Christian discipleship is what is, what is your attitude to me? Simon wasn't, was judging Jesus and what do you measure up? The woman was worshipping him, coming him, coming to him in humility and gratitude. Nope, it's not working, doesn't matter. So maybe as you think of a heading for this title, the heading I had was maybe, maybe a better title for this story is A Woman's Great Love. Or if I'm being more cheeky, a woman shows a man how to love Jesus. <laughs> That's what's really going on here. That's really what's happening. 
And this story is such a powerful one. It shows what the appropriate response to Jesus Christ is. And it shows the graciousness of Jesus in welcoming those in need. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you at the heart of this story is is how it points to your heart. Lord Jesus, that you're a God made flesh who shows us the heart of God for sinners, who you're a God of restoration, of healing, of gentleness, and you seek to restore. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we might be refreshed by thinking of this story. Maybe some of us have been made to feel invisible at times, like we have no value or status, that others ignore us, that we have no worth, that we don't measure up. And we thank you, God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are one who welcomes the excluded and you restore us. You restore us to be disciples and worshipers You transform us from sinners into lovers. And we thank you. Amen.